Welcome to Read All About It. My name is Nuri Vitachi, and I'm Marshall Moore. And in this show, we'll talk about two、uh, reasonably recent books, and then go on to talk about one classic, which today is going to be the World of Suzy Wong by Richard Mason. Today we have an Asian flavor to the show, and、uh, my book today is a brand new book just come out.、Um, Jennifer Lin is the author, and the book is called Shanghai Faithful. It's a rather unusual book, and I think it hasn't even arrived in Hong Kong yet.、Uh, just came out.、Uh, here's the interesting thing: it's a it's a story、uh, that's a true story. Every line of it is true, but it reads like a novel. It's a, it's actually a wonderful read.、Uh, Shanghai Faithful starts off with the story of a of a young woman、um, uh, going to look for her roots, and.、Um, It, you have to start by putting your mind back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, China was completely isolated from the world. It had cut itself off, and、uh, other countries, through sanctions, had、uh, were not allowing people to visit. So,、uh, in fact, you know, there was it was like a separate world in itself. It was a hermit kingdom, and.、Uh, Over in the U.S., there's a Chinese American family growing up, not really thinking anything about China, until、uh, 1976, when、uh, Jimmy Carter,、uh, who's very much a practicing Christian, announces that、uh, no, forgive, forget, we must,、um, we must engage, and drops all the sanctions, drops all the isolationist policies, and says,、um, let's start visiting each other, and so.、Um, Uh, uh, Jennifer's father, who is a neurosurgeon of Chinese ancestry in America,、um, he's not been to China, of course, for, for for decades. He says, "Well, we should go and have a look." So he takes、uh, a couple of his children, and they go off to China to have a look. They arrive in Shanghai. It's 1979. It's like going through a time tunnel. You know that everything is bicycles. There's hardly any cars. The cars that are there are ancient, and the only、uh, information they've had from China is a monthly letter from Jennifer's grandfather,、uh, which has been very bland. You know, I am well. Everything is as usual. How are you? And so they've had these monthly letters for years and years and years, and they finally arrive at the family house. Very bland house nineteen lane one seven zero, that's the address, and they start to talk to their relatives, and then something awful happens.、Um, Jennifer wakes up the next morning, and she sees her father. His face is ashen, and he's looked like he's had the most terrible shock. And he eventually reveals that he's while the girls went to bed. He spent the whole night talking to one of their relatives, Uncle George, and Uncle George has revealed what happened in the family in those lost decades, and the letters that they'd been receiving. Everything is as usual. Actually, hid the most astonishing story. So uh, uh, that's the that's that's how this story begins, and then what happens is that the the father. Uh, is just horrified, but he can't get any more information out of any of the other relatives. Nobody wants to talk about it. They go back to America. The father locks it up in his head and just doesn't want to know anything more about it. But the young girl, she's a junior reporter, and she decides she's got to investigate. She's got to find out that what was not said in those letters,、um, and so she starts investigating her family. 
and discovers it's interlinked with the history of China in a very dramatic way. And, uh, and that's the story of the book, which is really an absolutely gripping tale. That's really fascinating. The first thing it reminds me of is Amy Tan and her fiction, because she's done a lot of writing about Chinese people from the United States going back to China to trace their roots. But then what I really am left with right now was wanting to know what happened, because the story sounds really wrenching and fascinating, and you probably can't say much about it without spoiling it, can you? Well, fortunately, it's, uh, the, the book actually covers a lot of history and, uh, and moves fairly fast. Um, so what we, what we soon learn is that um, uh, Jennifer's ancestors were um, – her, her, her great-great-grandfather was a fisherman who is converted to Christianity by a missionary – um, she, she her research is really amazing. She builds up this picture of uh, of Westerners arriving in China, and basically the, they seem to be there to poison the body and poison the mind. So the opium sellers are poisoning the bodies, and the missionaries are poisoning the minds. And so very hostile reaction to the to the Westerners arriving. And then they discover that the the missionaries hate the opium sellers. They've they've um, hitchhiked lifts on the opium sellers' boats because that's the only way to get into China. But they hate the opium sellers, and they tell the people, "Don't uh, buy opium. We'll give you a new way to get high." And they also start to unwrap the bound feet, and then they start to educate the girls, not the boys, but the girls. And so slowly, the Christian missionaries charm the Chinese population by doing all these extraordinary things and um, eventually uh, one of the, uh, the the fisherman gives birth to a son who becomes the central character of the book he decides he's going to join the westerners with their weird countercultural ways and his story carries through the book but the really wonderful thing is that he's based in shanghai for a lot of it and of course shanghai was where everything happened you had the the nationalists uh, uh, fighting Chiang Kai-shek. We, you had the um, Mao Zedong approaching from the south, trying to take over China. You had the Japanese invading. Uh, everything was happening uh, around uh, Shanghai, where this young Chinese uh, churchman was trying to hold everything together. And what a lot of people don't realize is that um, Chiang Kai-shek was a Christian, as was uh, Sun Yat-sen, the father of modern China. So all these stories are actually linked to this family who was trying to spread Christianity in China. Um, and that's where you find that this one family story suddenly interlinks with the, the entire history of China in the modern era. Quite amazing. Right, which would actually make it interlink with some of the more prominent families here in Hong Kong as well, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, indeed. And um, the family survive in China until 1949 when they decide the violence level is so high um, that at least some of them have to escape to Hong Kong. And so comes a, a, um, a journey which you realize when you're reading the book will somehow end with at least one of the characters ending up going through Hong Kong and then going to America and then... Uh, becoming a doctor in America and marrying a, uh, an American and the, the story turning uh, full circle. So um, because it's one of those stories which starts at the end and goes back, um, it's nice because there are no spoilers in it. You can actually 
tell someone the whole story because uh, uh, you read the first chapter and you kind of know the whole story. Then you just go in and and, uh, and read the details. Another marvelous thing that uh, Jennifer discovers is that her brother-in-law was a man called Watchman Nee. Have you ever heard of that that name? No, and I don't think I've ever, ever even had a student with a name as odd as that. Yes, it's a very odd name, but look in the history books, and he's all over them. Watchman Nee was the Billy Graham of China, so converted huge numbers of people. The remarkable thing is that the tiny Christian community in China was persecuted from almost the beginning of the story to, to the end, but quietly, quietly, they they triumph. And, uh, and of course, today there are... Uh, we don't know how many Christians there are in China, maybe 70, 80 million, uh, maybe 90 million. And the number of Communist Party members is around 80-something million. So, in fact, there there might be equal numbers or there might actually be more Christians in, in China than there are Communist Party members. So uh, it's really a, an amazing story of, uh, of quiet triumph from a, a small group who... who um, who expanded by doing very simple things like uh, taking the bandages off uh, off the feet of little girls. Was that what actually started the trend away from foot binding? It was one of the things, uh, certainly. I, I don't think there's any one specific um, uh, person credited with this, but um, a very famous uh, example was a woman called Harriet uh, Harriet News, who lived uh, just over the border. She came through Hong Kong and um, she started a girls' school, 300 girls, and they. she insisted all of them had their feet bindings taken off and they, they literally danced for joy. She started a, a group called the True Light, which you can still see the name True Light all over Hong Kong. So you've been kind of raving about this book. Is there anything that you would say critical of it? <laughs> yeah. uh, I do have one or two complaints. Uh, what is the, 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 the format? It, it's, um, it's given a very sort of academic format. Uh, you know, it has a double title, Shanghai Faithful, A Story of Love and Betrayal, blah, 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 blah. You know, I hate these double titles. Double titles are for academic books. They're not for books you actually read. Um, and uh, and again, this, the the cover picture is an old black and white picture of the family, whereas this actually reads like a really good novel. It reads like, um, remember White Swans? It's like White Swans, but better written. And I've been talking about Shanghai Faithful by Jennifer Lin. My book today is The Seventh Day by Yu Hua. Uh, Yu Hua is a very prominent writer up in mainland China, and a number of his books have been converted into films. So if you're at all literary, if you're a cinephile, if you're a Sino-Cinephile, then you've probably heard of Brothers, I think is one of the more famous ones. In any case, this is his new one. Um, it's been out in English less than a year, and it's fascinating. It's a little hard to describe because it's a bit abstract, but I'll give it a shot. Essentially, this man named Yang Fei has had a fairly simple life. He was an orphan because his mother gave birth to him on a moving train and accidentally dropped him through the hole that serves as the toilet. And he's found by a young railroad switchman and adopted informally and raised. So he's a fairly poor man, not a you know simple life. 
And then at the beginning of the book, uh, Yang Fei wakes up and he's dead. And so he's walking around this unnamed Chinese city, kind of reflecting on his normal day. And he's trying, he's gotten instructions already. It's not really specified how to get to the crematorium for his own cremation. And so he gets out of bed and he takes a shower and he's getting ready and he makes it to the crematorium and it's all just getting weirder and weirder and weirder. And there's this sort of gentleness about it. The city is shrouded in fog. He's taking the bus. We don't really quite know what's going on apart from the fact that he's dead and on his way to his own cremation. And then it starts to go even more wrong because he's an orphan. He has no family to mourn him, to pay for the cremation, to pay for all the things that need to be done. So he can't even be properly cremated. And he's essentially relegated to this after-death limbo land where he's just roaming around this unnamed, very foggy, or I suppose it could be smog given what the air quality is like up there, city. And as the book progresses... You learn a lot more about his life and what led up to this. He was in a restaurant that blew up. And um, as you read, you find that Yuhua is commenting, which is really what he does in his work. He's commenting a lot on the rapid development of the mainland and how it kind of grinds people up, you could say. Maybe I could put it a better way, but... You know, people get hurt, things break, things fall apart. And we've all heard about the tofu buildings and what happens in earthquakes and pollution. And the air quality here isn't even so great today. But Yang Fei is in a really bizarre predicament because he's dead. He's been blown up. He's disfigured. And he can't even really have his face put back together properly. And so he meets these other dead people as well. And they're all kind of wandering through the haze together in the afterlife because they can't get buried properly, according to Chinese funerary traditions. It sounds almost like a sort of zombie novel or something. Well, it, it does. And that's the funny thing, because the novel is so literary. It doesn't read like a horror novel Technically, it's a ghost story, but what I think he's really doing, it's, I think it's more of a satire, where it really is a comment on life up in mainland China as it's going through this massive development boom and as bad things are happening to innocent people. How does this fit in with tra uh, traditional Chinese ideas about uh, ghosts and spirits? Well, the cool thing about the book, and this is one of the reasons I really recommend it if people don't know much about that already, is it's really consistent with it because Western readers are more likely to expect the light at the end of the tunnel and the pearly gates or what have you. But here, this is a very Chinese death in the sense that the ghost, if you want to call him that, I'm, I'm making air quotes here, the you know, the ghost, Yang Fei, um, as, as solid. He's, he has substance. And that's one of the things that is different in um, Chinese and Western ghost traditions for the most part. And so, and certain things have to be done, certain rituals have to be enacted so that he can move on to whatever comes next. And for much of the book, he's basically in limbo 
because he can't be mourned properly. The correct observances can't be held. And so in most respects, he's like a solid figure because it talks about him taking a shower and getting dressed and he's wearing a black armband around his own arm because he's the only person around to mourn himself. So it's very Chinese in that way. And it's really interesting because if, like I said, you know, if it's not a, a belief system or a mythology or what have you that you're familiar with already, it's really different from what you might have read before. It sounds like quite a dark story. Is there, is there humor or commentary in it? The, the funny Satire. thing is it, it is dark in places. It's in some ways, I think a better word for it is foggy because it, so much of the city is hidden in mist. The story is not even – I didn't find it that depressing. There were some reviews of it online that where people did take it that way. I thought it was just really interesting because it was so bizarre. I mean, he's wandering around, for example, and uh, meeting all of these other deceased people who are like living in a bomb shelter because it's like what what their life was like when they were alive and like young people who had to sell kidneys and it went horribly awry or what have you. And so it's definitely a comment on the dark side, but I just found it really intriguing and bizarre. But not one for the children, probably. I think they'd be lost. I mean, I think that it's something where if a more mature reader would appreciate it more because it's it's very readable. I mean, he's a terrific writer, at least in translation. I can't speak to what it's like in the original Chinese, but it's just interesting and it maintains your interest all the way through. So there's not a point where you're likely to feel like, OK, I get the idea and then kind of check out for a couple of chapters. I, I wouldn't see that happening. It sounds quite filmic in a way. Do you see it as a movie? I could see it as a movie, possibly. The structure of the novel is really loose, and it's almost like a series of interconnecting stories, kind of like David Mitchell, who we know also does that. And it's it does tell a story because it's essentially the life and the afterlife of this one man, Yang Fei. But it could be filmed. I think it could be made to work. I mean, Cloud Atlas was made into a film, and that actually worked. This is obviously a good way into a bit of Chinese culture that people outside China might not know about. Uh, um, uh, could it be popular in the West, do you think? I think possibly so. I mean, when we think about Asian writing in English, I mean, the first name that comes to mind is like Amy Tan, who's obviously writing about very different experiences. Um, I think that somebody who's read uh, Maxine Hong Kingston's book, The Woman Warrior, would probably find this really interesting as well because that book goes into some of the same mythology and it really skirts the the boundaries between real and not real. And as you read that, there are many points where you're wondering exactly where that boundary is. And he's doing the same thing here. Obviously, he's a Chinese writer living in China, so it's not necessarily written for Western audiences. But at the same time, if you're curious and you want to pick up a really good book that's different. This is definitely good, definitely different. So I've been talking about The Seventh Day by Yu Hua. And our classic today is The World of Susie Wong by Richard Mason. Many people know the basic story of the, the, the English artist who meets the, the Wan Chai Bar girl and a big love affair uh, develops. But very few people have actually read the book and it actually went out of print 
uh, in the 80s and uh, has been revived since. I think a Hong Kong publisher revived it in the mid-90s and uh, I think Penguin has, uh, has put out an edition now. It's a surprisingly good book. I had, I'll admit I hadn't read it until we agreed to do it. And so for me, I was coming to it completely with fresh eyes because I hadn't seen the film and I hadn't read the book. So being a good academic, I went to my u- university library and checked out a copy. And it's a little lurid looking at the cover. I'm like, OK, I'm going to be seen reading this on the MTR and people will think I'm reading trash. And the it's, fun- a, it's, a girl, it's a girl with a split chong sum on, uh, right. on the cover of the Penguin edition. Right, looking just a wee bit provocative. So I was thinking, okay, this looks like I'm reading kind of a Hong Kong Chinese bodice ripper. But at the same time, once I started reading, it's actually a big surprise. Because first of all, Richard Mason is a really good writer to the extent that I was surprised by it. And no matter what else you might think about the novel, the man can put a sentence together. And it was surprising to me just how readable it is and how psychologically adept it is. His observances are great. He has a sharp eye. He develops the characters really well. So I actually have a certain measured respect for the book. The story is about uh, this British artist who's uh, he's living in Malaysia and he decides he wants a big change. So he comes to Hong Kong and he sets himself up in the in the Luck Kwok Hotel is is where is the real hotel. Although in the book he changes the name to the um, the Nam Kok Hotel, uh, which is on the corner of um, of sort of Lockhart Road, Jaffe Road. The hotel is is still there today. And uh, he realizes after a while that um, all the rooms are, are short term. A sh- short time rooms except uh, his own and uh, it's uh, it's full of prostitutes he famously meets um meets the girl on the on the star ferry so we've got all these cute hong kong scenes in there and it's kind of a it's kind of a slightly unpredictable love story isn't it because uh you know he he actually goes off with another woman at a, at a certain stage and then comes back doesn't he Right. And it's really interesting. I suppose I don't read a lot of romances, but I don't actually think I read romances. But it's the sort of thing where, like, if you do, I suppose you sort of expect the lovers to meet, to come together. They have a certain number of obstacles. They fall out. They get back together. Something big happens. So in some respects, this is really conventional. But like you said, it's got such a Hong Kong flavor to it. It's colonial era. So someone reading it today would really get a clear picture because, again, he he's so descriptive and he has such an excellent eye for detail that you can read this and really get a feeling for what Hong Kong must have been like back in the 50s. And uh, I could even um, boast of a very tiny connection with this in that um, uh, my father used to always stay in the Luck Walk Hotel whenever he was in Hong Kong. And um, I noticed that... Um, the Richard Mason, he actually he lived for three months in the in the Luckwalk Hotel when he wrote the first draft of this book, and then some years later, an author called Gavin Young also stayed in the same hotel and wrote um, Slow Boats to China, which was also a hit. So um, on one of my father's visits, I thought there must be some sort of uh, s- spiritual thing going on in this hotel. So I went to that hotel and started my book, The Feng Shui Detective. And that was also a reasonably good hit. So there must be some sort of good vibe there or something, I hope. So let's talk about some of the aspects of the book that might not have aged so well. Well, you've just read it recently, so so you should know. So, so, so what's dated in the book? Well, I think 
the thing is, it, this actually also reminds me of another book I read fairly recently, Burmese Days by George Orwell. Um, the This book was progressive for its time. The attitude that uh, Lomax, the main character, had toward Asia and Asian women were probably pretty progressive and liberal and there was a lot more colonial era racism in the day that was just taken for granted. And I think that he was probably describing Hong Kong as it actually was, as more or less people interacted. But at the same time, you can kind of see where he's got these views of the Chinese people he interacts with not necessarily being his equals, uh, either in intellect or just in terms of how much he respects them. And he also seems to have that kind of air of gentlemen of the day where women were basically incubators for their lady parts. So he's not actually a bad guy. He's really not. But this is the kind of thing where the racial stuff, the gender stuff, will probably make some readers uncomfortable today in the same way that like Mark Twain does, because it's a product of its time and it might not even have been so bad in its day, but today it's it, that bit's a bit dated. I wonder if though one of the reasons why it was such a big hit when it came out, it came out in the, in the late 50s, I think 57, uh, and uh, was followed by the movie in 1960. I think one of the reasons why it was such a big hit was that in those days Asia was seen as decadent and sensual and uh, you know the British were sort of stiff upper lip working very hard very serious people and it's interesting how it's flipped now Asians are seen as working very hard and working all hours and making stuff and the West is seen as sort of decadent and sexual and sensual so um, it's an interesting um, uh, hark back to a, to, a, to a time where our stereotypes were almost the other way round I'd never thought of it that way before. That's actually really interesting. But I can see your point. And you can definitely see that exoticism in the way that Hong Kong and the Hong Kong Chinese characters are depicted. Of course, he's describing women who work in a brothel, basically. So that right there completely sexualizes everything. And the language was actually a little saltier than I was expecting, too. Now, we're talking about it as a love story, but uh, it's not really that fluffy, is it? No, it really turns dark toward the end. And some of the social problems that were rampant in Hong Kong at the time, I think that uh, Mason actually dealt with those head on. So it's fluff and roses and lovey-dovey up to a point. But then, yeah, the last third of the book is actually kind of grim. So well worth reading. And uh, the movie did have its charm as well. It's very different from the book in certain ways, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worthy reminder of Hong Kong in, in bygone days. We've been talking about Shanghai Faithful by Jennifer Lin and The Seventh Day by Yu Hua. And our classic this week was The World of Susie Wong by Richard Mason. Join us next week if you can. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>